A note to my podcast feed listeners, what you're about to hear is another episode from the new series I've been working on called Short Reads. Short Reads is basically just me reading a passage from a work of philosophical literature and then offering a few brief insights into the text afterward to help you think about the text and to find ways to apply the concepts in your own life. These episodes are released weekly, and as an Anchor podcast listener, I encourage you to keep listening as long as you like them. If you're finding the series especially enjoyable, I'd like to invite you to head on over to my Locals community page at exitingthecave.locals.com, where you can become a subscriber. A $3 subscription will give you early access to these episodes, as well as to my videos, to my philosophical musings in essay form, and especially to a community of other like-minded listeners where you can discuss these podcasts or any other philosophical topics you find compelling. I'm looking forward to meeting you over there. Now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Exiting the Cave Short Reads. We continue with The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. This week's reading is Book 3, Chapter 3. This is the first meditation on the downward slope from true happiness, and reiterates the insufficiency of wealth as a means to that end. Let's listen in as Lady Philosophy and Boethius revisit the question in a brief dialogue with each other. See you on the other side. Ye too, creatures of earth, have some glimmering of your origin, however faint. And though in a vision dim and clouded, yet in some wise notwithstanding, ye discern the true end of happiness, and so the aim of nature leads you thither, to that true good, while error in many forms leads you astray therefrom. For reflect whether men are able to win happiness by those means through which they think to reach the proposed end. Truly, if either wealth, rank, or any of the rest bring with them anything of such sort as seems to have nothing wanting to it that is good, we too acknowledge that some are made happy by the acquisition of these things. But if they are not able to fulfill their promises and, moreover, lack many good things, is not the happiness men seek in them clearly discovered to be a false show? Therefore do I first ask thee thyself, who but lately wert living in affluence amid all the abundance of wealth, was thy mind never troubled in consequence of something wrong done to thee? Nay, said I, I cannot ever remember a time when my mind was so completely at peace as not to feel the pang of some uneasiness. Was it not because either something was absent which thou wouldst not have absent, or present which thou wouldst have away? Yes, said I. Then thou didst want the presence of the one, the absence of the other? Admitted. But a man lacks that of which he is in want. He does. And he who lacks something is not in all points self-sufficing? No, certainly not, said I. So wert thou then in the plenitude of thy wealth, supporting this insufficiency? 
I must have been. Wealth, then, cannot make its possessor independent and free from all want, yet this was what it seemed to promise. Moreover, I think this also well deserves to be considered, that there is nothing in the special nature of money to hinder its being taken away from those who possess it against their will. I admit it. Why, of course, when every day the stronger rests it from the weaker without his consent. Else whence come lawsuits except in seeking to recover monies which have been taken away against their owner's will by force or fraud? True, said I. Then everyone will need some extraneous means of protection to keep his money safe. Who can venture to deny it? Yet he would not, unless he possessed the money which it is possible to lose. No, he certainly would not. Then we have worked around to an opposite conclusion. The wealth which it was thought to make a man independent rather puts him in need of further protection. How in the world, then, can want be driven away by riches? Cannot the rich feel hunger? Cannot they thirst? Are not the limbs of the wealthy sensitive to the winter's cold? But, thou wilt say, the rich have the wherewithal to sate their hunger, the means to get rid of thirst and cold. True enough, want can thus be soothed by riches. Wholly removed, it cannot be. For if this ever-gaping, ever-craving want is glutted by wealth, it needs must be that the want itself, which can be so glutted, still remains. I do not speak of how very little suffices for nature, and how for avarice nothing is enough. Wherefore, if wealth cannot get rid of want, and makes new wants of its own, how can ye believe that it bestows independence? Though the covetous grown wealthy see his piles of gold rise high, though he gather store of treasure, that can never satisfy. Though with pearls his gorget blazes, rarest in the ocean yields. Though a hundred head of oxen travail in his ample fields, ne'er shall carking care forsake him while he draw this vital breath, and his riches go not with him when his eyes are closed in death. There are two kinds of sufficiency at work here. First is the concept of happiness itself, and whether it is something that is a self-contained unity, or is comprised of several necessary but insufficient parts. The second is the explicit way in which Lady Philosophy and by extension Boethius have been working with it, which is to say the psychological state of the person, or his character. The same analysis applies to psychological state as to intellectual concept. Can there be a state of happiness in man that is self-sufficient? Or is happiness in man a condition that is comprised of several necessary but insufficient parts? Now, Aristotle argues in the Nicomachean Ethics that the latter is the case. But there is a bit of confusion here, 
And this is partly what philosophy may be trying to point out, or at least partly what Boethius himself is grappling with intellectually. For Aristotle, happiness is not a psychological state like joy, but a judgment of the condition of the character of a man. Some feature that is evident in his actions renders him happy on the judgment of a happy man observing him. Boethius agrees at least to some extent that happiness is the result of a condition of character, but he disagrees on whether this condition is a unity or not. Aristotle thinks that both fortunate circumstances and the right habitual practices combine to make a happy life in total, so it could not be a true unity. At first glance, it may seem like Lady Philosophy is taking this position, but this is not so. As we noted in earlier chapters, anything that is not true happiness would be a false happiness on her account, and as such must be rejected. The implication is that true happiness is indeed a unity, both in the conceptual sense and in the characterological sense. If a man is dependent upon contingencies like wealth, then he could not be truly happy, since happiness is a self-sufficiency. Of course, the problem with this view of happiness is precisely that it is a pristine abstraction. If you carve away all of the contingencies that are thought to constitute happiness on Earth, all you're left with is the reified concept itself. Aristotle would have completely rejected such a notion, and says so explicitly in his discussion of the good in Book One of the Ethics. So, while Aristotle would have agreed with Lady Philosophy that wealth is insufficient for true happiness, he would have rejected the idea that it was unrelated at all to happiness. The idea here is that good fortune is useless without the character necessary to make good use of it, and that good character is useless without the circumstances necessary to exercise it. This is why Aristotle points out that we could call perpetually sleeping men, or men stretched out on the rack, happy without the coupling of virtue to worldly contingencies. Finally, it might be interesting to consider the political implications of this chapter. Boethius is positioning himself in the Neoplatonic tradition against Aristotle's worldliness. In one sense, this is a good thing, because it orients the mind toward the contemplation of truth beyond the present moment, and arguably opens one to the presence of God. At least, that is what Boethius would have thought. But in another sense, this is not a good thing, because it sets up a world in which there is no responsibility to better the condition of fellow men, let alone ourselves. If wealth is pure accident and happiness is pure contemplation of the good, then what motive is there for good men to share their accidents with others? Wouldn't the argument go something like this? It's not up to me who is rich or poor, and being rich puts all sorts of extra burdens on the rich, so you're better off staying poor, so as to keep you from being distracted from true happiness. Aristotle, on the other hand, would say that goodness makes no sense in the absence of activity. We must act in order to show our character to each other. Those actions are judged virtuous or vicious depending on the goal at which they aim. Human excellence includes such virtues as magnanimity and fellow-feeling. What's more, 
man is made for political life, which is to say, he is an animal that, by nature, must be socially active. True happiness for man could only be present in an active life that exhibited the virtues of a political animal. Thus, such things as generosity and fellow-feeling are necessary for happiness, and by extension, the accumulation of at least some wealth is necessary in order to make it possible for those virtues to be expressed. So we have two divergent views of the good society by implication from the argument taking place in this chapter. Much more could be said about this. This is certainly not a complete treatment, and it's possible I'm reading too much into the text, but I'll leave it for you to mull over until next week. See you then.